0: Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast, core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. This week, I want to review a presentation we had on fluid resuscitation. Before we get to that, though, I want to mention an email that we got from a listener. Ali, a listener in the UK, asked if we could discuss a bit about adrenal suppression after she had a particularly challenging case. I thought it was a great idea and started writing something up when I realized that we had actually covered this way back in episode 15, so a little bit over a year ago. Now, I'll drop a link to that podcast in the show notes, but I thought we could just do a review of a couple of the higher points of that podcast to do a little spaced repetition. The two common varieties of adrenal insufficiency that we see are congenital adrenal hyperplasia, where there's a genetic issue with the steroid pathway leading to deficits in certain hormones, and the acquired adrenal insufficiencies, which we typically see because people are using exogenous steroids. The most common type of congenital adrenal hyperplasia, or CAH, is the classic kind, and that's where there's both a deficiency of aldosterone and cortisol. Even when patients are on their usual meds, they can have exacerbations if there's any additional stress to their bodies. Patients will typically present with lethargy, vomiting, hypotension, and just generally looking unwell. If we do blood work, we'll see hyponatremia and hyperkalemia, as well as hypoglycemia. Treat the patient with volume expansion, electrolyte, and glucose correction, and give them the steroid they need. Typically, we're using hydrocortisone in our emergency department. We more commonly see acquired adrenal insufficiency in the emergency department. This can be primary like Addison's disease or secondary as a result of impaired stimulation of the adrenals. Again, we're commonly gonna see the prior mentioned electrolyte disorders. The hallmark which tips you off to adrenal insufficiency, whether it be congenital or acquired, is refractory hypotension. That hypotension will even be refractory to pretty reasonable doses of vasopressors. We often see this in patients with septic shock. Any stress can lead to this, whether it be trauma or infection or myocardial infarction. Again, the heart of management here is going to be volume replacement, steroid replacement, and electrolyte correction. All right, so there's some good spaced repetition, but again, head over to podcast number 15 and the accompanying blog post for more details. All right, let's move on from there to something that's actually pretty closely related, which is fluid resuscitation, something that we do every day in the emergency department. This discussion sprung from an article published by Paul Merrick in Critical Care Medicine, and it was entitled, Fluid Responsiveness and the Six Guiding Principles of Fluid Resuscitation. The article is short, just three pages in length, and I think it's a must read for everyone working in the emergency department or doing resuscitation on a regular basis. As stated in the title, Merrick reviews six pieces of fluid resuscitation that should form the basis of how we apply fluids to patients. First, he discusses the concept of fluid responsiveness as the foundation for fluid resuscitation. Patients with shock have hypoperfusion and decreased cardiac output. We administer fluids to help fix this, but the fluids are only going to be beneficial if they increase stroke volume and thus cardiac output. We're not simply trying to expand the volume, but to push the patient onto or up the ascending limb of the Frank-Starling curve. By stretching the ventricle, we hope to increase contractility and thus stroke volume. A patient is fluid-responsive if they can use that volume to increase their cardiac output. If the fluids don't increase stroke volume or cardiac output, we may simply be harming the patient by giving them fluid they can't handle. While we don't necessarily see the effects of over-aggressive fluids in the ED, our ICU colleagues see it every day. Only patients who we deem to be fluid-responsive should get a fluid challenge. Of course, figuring out who's going to be responsive isn't so easy. Second, Merrick goes into the typical means of assessing fluid responsiveness, chest x-ray, clinical signs, CVP, and ultrasound, and notes that all of these are flawed. They don't give us the information we want to determine fluid responsiveness. Merrick suggests using LV outflow track velocity on echo, TEE, bioimpedance devices, and pulse contour analysis. The problem is that these are not always easily accomplished in the emergency department. That brings us to point number three, which is that passive leg raise or PLR with real-time stroke volume assessment is probably the best method we have available right now for determining fluid responsiveness. Basically, we assess the LV function, do a passive leg raise, which in essence gives an auto bolus, and then assess the LV function again. If the LV function improves, the patient is fluid responsive. The nice thing about PLR is that it's reversible, non-invasive, and it can be used regardless of whether the patient is intubated or not. Unfortunately, it's not perfect. It can't be used if you can't reposition the patient, it can't be used if the abdominal compartment pressures are elevated, and it requires multiple LV function assessments, which not every emergency doctor is skilled at. Fourth, Merrick stresses the fact that even when the patient responds to a fluid bolus, the response may be short-lived. We see this all the time. Patient has low blood pressure, we give a bolus of fluids, blood pressure comes up, but then 15, 20, or 30 minutes later, it's down again. We should expect this to happen and consider using vasopressors like norepinephrine when it does. Fifth, just because the patient is fluid responsive doesn't mean they should get a fluid bolus. We have to carefully think about fluid overload and weigh the risks and benefits. I think the point here is to stress that fluids aren't a benign intervention. They're a medication just like anything else, and we have to think about them carefully. Finally, Merrick's sixth point, and he takes a shot at CVP, which of course he's done multiple times in the past. He notes that a CVP that's greater than 8 millimeters of mercury may actually lead to increased pressure exerted on certain organs like the kidneys, which could lead to decreased perfusion and blood flow, and as a result, injury. So we have to be careful about using that CVP as a number to titrate to. Now Merrick concludes by saying, and I quote, Fluid resuscitation is the defining skill of intensivists, emergency medicine physicians, surgeons, and anesthesiologists. Yet many of these clinicians have a poor understanding of the fundamental principles involved in fluid administration, resulting in conflicting, inconsistent, and potentially harmful treatment strategies. Fluid administration should be guided by an assessment of fluid responsiveness combined with the determination of the potential benefits and harms of fluid administration. Large fluid boluses should be avoided. While we can't learn everything by simply reading a three-page article, I think this is a start to getting us a better understanding of what it means to do fluid resuscitation, what fluid responsiveness is, and how to smartly apply fluids. Although this may change in the future, right now I'm typically starting with a 30 cc per kilo bolus that's widely recommended in patients with normal cardiac function and septic shock. I'll often use a smaller initial bolus in patients with poorer cardiac function at baseline. After that initial bolus, I'm using PLR with repeat echo assessment of the LV function to determine if the patient is fluid responsive. I'll give small fluid doses if the patient is responsive, but I'm typically starting norepinephrine in these patients as well. Again, I strongly recommend reading the whole article and getting all of Merrick's tips. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a Core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google Plus, and on Twitter, where our handle is at Core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.